And thanks to Saxoff Fifth for supporting this episode of TFC. From investment pieces to vacation essentials, Saxoff Fifth is where fashion takes off. Shop now at saxoffifth.com or go to a Saxoff Fifth store near you for up to 70% off spring styles. Hello, my sweet baby angels. It's me, Chelsea Fagan, your host, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet and woman who loves talking about money. And today I'm actually unexpectedly doing a solo episode um, after some technical difficulties. Uh, So I thought about what is a topic that I feel prepared to speak on uh, a bit on the fly, uh, but that also I've been getting a lot of genuine questions and interest about. And it will shock no one to hear that the answer is my book. (laughs) I can't help but be Jean Ralphio when I talk about my book. It's, It's a disease and there's no cure. Um, No, but in all seriousness, so if you guys have not heard, I'll link the uh, announcement video in the description um, and uh, the book uh, as pictured here for those who are watching on YouTube uh, is called A Perfect Vintage. It's a romantic fiction book. It's out uh, at the beginning of June. Um, You can, you know, pre-order, request a galley if you wanna be an early reviewer. Uh, You can even buy the cover art on these gorgeous canvas prints. Like there are a lot of options. They're all at the website uh, that I link uh, in the description as well, the main book website. Suffice to say, uh, it has taken over my non-work hours uh, quite a bit over the past few weeks. I announced on March 16th, um, which was about a little under three months uh, from when I'm launching, and uh, basically my nights and weekends and Fridays, because as we all know at TFD, I do not work uh, Fridays, have been uh, pretty consumed with doing things like packing mailers, doing admin, answering emails, you know, fine tuning the printing details because that's a never ending saga. Um, But I've gotten, not an exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds of questions about the process. Now, I do want to be clear that on pub date, June 6th, I will be doing a full breakdown of the the cost, the uh, profits thus far, how much money I make per copy, um, because part of the reason why I wanted to publish this independently, for those who don't know, I started my own imprint to publish this myself with a team of women uh, that I worked with who are both from uh, inside the traditional publishing industry and outside of it. Um, Part of the reason that that was so compelling is because it is financially quite a bit more lucrative once you out-earn the first uh, initial investment. But it has been uh, a real journey, to say the least, uh, and I wanted to answer a lot of the questions that I've been getting about it. Um, I won't bother uh, with the uh, description of the book because I talked about it quite a bit in my announcement video. Um, you can read the back of the jacket here if you're on YouTube, uh, but I'll also put it in the show notes and the description so that you guys can see what it uh, what this bad boy is all about, uh, if you don't know, and um, you know, essentially just kind of get caught up. But I want to talk about the logistics, the creative and sort of professional process, all the stuff that's not the very nitty gritty finances. I'll give broad numbers, but I won't have a real financial picture um, until closer to the pub date. I'm going to go through everything with my accountant. Um, So I just want to answer some of the questions that I've been getting and uh, talk about how You know, whether you're looking to do something very literally equivalent to what I did, i.e. writing a book, uh, or you're looking to take on another large project, creative or otherwise, I think a lot of these same um, insights really apply. And in my announcement video, I got rather emotional. I'm not a crier in general and certainly not a crier on my own 
channel. So it was, uh, you know, it really took a lot for me to cry visibly. Um, but it was very emotional because the act of making a creative decision that felt very true to myself despite uh, risks and, um, you know, financial investments and, you know, abdicating uh, institutional validation was a really intense one. Um, but I think beyond the emotional side of it, there's just a lot of practical stuff that is um, really useful for people to know if this is something that they are interested in. Uh, so with all of that out of the way, uh, I'm just going to answer the most frequently asked questions. How do you do this from like a self-confidence perspective, like a vulnerability perspective? Because putting yourself out there to this extent, betting on yourself this big um, with no institutional validation or support, because at the end of the day, a publisher provides one thing above all else, and that is institutional validation. The self-publishing world has gotten advanced enough that most of the things that were provided previously by a publisher exclusively, like getting into brick and mortar stores or, you know, um, sending out galleys or, you know, having a quality print product, all of that kind of stuff, like that used to be pretty gatekept and there was no way around it. Most of that is not true anymore. The vast majority of it isn't, isn't true anymore. But one thing they do still offer and provide to people is that stamp of approval, is that feeling of like, Someone saw this, someone in a big fancy building with a nice office saw this and said, this is good. I want to take this on. I want to stand behind this. And for a lot of creatives and for a lot of people generally, having that validation and that backing is essential to putting your work out there and putting yourself out there. Because if not, if you're just standing on your own, you're very vulnerable. You you could be a laughing stock. You know, what if your product is terrible? Now, I do highly encourage anyone who's looking to do a creative undertaking themselves to find people with real taste who will actually tell you what's real and what's good and what's not. I mean, as I've mentioned in my announcement video, I did work with a um, an editor at a big five publisher who really fell in love with the, the manuscript when she got it. So I did have that feeling of like, someone saw this and I like her taste and and she's not just flattering me. But even that aside, ultimately the cheese stands alone, right? Like you got to go out there and put your name on something and do it with the self-confidence and by being your own advocate, your own ambassador and um, assuming responsibility for what the re reaction will be. And that's not to say that people who have institutional validation are totally you know, insulated from, for example, if you get negative feedback or it doesn't sell or people aren't interested, that's devastating even if you do have the backing. But at least you had that stamp of approval, right? Like at least you achieved, you cleared that hurdle, which for a lot of people I think is really important. And it was important for me too for a long time. Now I can genuinely say I do not give a shit. I really don't. Like I, as I said, I'm definitely going to I'll probably always to some extent be involved in traditional publishing for different projects, but it's a means to an end. It's because they can deliver a better product and do things that I don't have the resources to do. And in that specific instance, the let's say advance makes more sense than the longer game. But other than that, it's a numbers game. It's what am I per what am I putting in versus what am I getting out? What is the long-term benefit here? What's the level of control here? What's the IP I'm retaining? What's what am I actually, what are the tangible benefits and outcomes that I'm drawing from this? Everything else, that, and I would equate this sincerely to any job offer, let's say, 
the prestige, the how other people look at you when you say what you do for a living, the weight that a name carries, unless you're doing it just to have a name on your resume to leapfrog to a better job, then there better be a good salary and benefits. It better have a good work-life balance because so many people waste so many years of their life giving up so much of themselves and their talents and their resources and their skills for employers and projects and causes that don't deserve it because of that prestige. This is rampant in academia, in the nonprofit world, in politics, in creative and media industries, anywhere where there's a lot of people fighting for very few spots and a feeling that you should just be glad to be there or that you should just be down for the cause your own quality of life and resources be damned. Um, and that to me has no, no bearing whatsoever anymore. Like I'm looking at the bottom line in every decision that I make. How does this affect my life? What am I getting out of it? What does it enable me to do? And so that's part of it, right? Is to just have a very clear-eyed perspective of what your actual priorities are anytime that you are taking on any kind of project or working with any kind of employer or, you know, as a contractor. So that's number one. But number two, in terms of putting it out there, and this is like, I cannot stress this enough. And I'm going to, I'm not going to name names, although I wish I could. Um, (laughs) I have heard some stuff from people. I'm going to be real vague here to not get anyone in trouble. God forbid someone relevant is listening. But there was a discussion between someone associated with my project and someone in the traditional industry. And they said some things, some real condescending stuff. They haven't read it, so it's not about the actual project. But it's just about the, the overall approach. And I won't lie, the first like 10 minutes I was like, what? Like what a rude thing to say. But I did after like 10 minutes, I thought, A, I feel genuinely sad for anyone who has such an innate need to defensively gatekeep their own prestige and their own role in things that they have to be denigrating to other people, um, that they don't believe there's enough space for everyone to win, that they don't want other people to succeed if it's not on their terms. Like that's a that's a that's miserable hag energy is what I call it. I think that's just miserable hags, male or that's genderless by the way. Anyone can be a hag. That's that energy, and I feel sad for people who have that energy because it's a it's a terrible way to live. Um, so anyone who's going to be them truly, truly them. Um, but then second, and kind of more importantly. Because there are some valid criticisms. Anyone putting themselves out there is opening themselves up to trolls, yes, assholes, yes, but also valid criticism and people who just don't vibe with what you're doing and all of that. And that's inevitable and that never feels good. No one ever likes that. But at the end of the day, truly, what is the alternative? To never do the thing you want? To never uh, believe in your own project enough to let it stand on its merits? To never attempt something? To never... uh, create something in the world that you're really proud of and feel um and feel is a part of your identity like truly what is the alternative and as I've said in in previous videos but I think is always bearing bears repeating like I will go to my deathbed knowing that I did everything I wanted to do and I did it the way I wanted to do it and I lived up to my values and I had fun and I worked creatively in a way that was satisfying, paid people fairly, made good friends. 
ate good food, traveled the world, died. You know, like that is truly the vibe I'm trying to take with me. And the people that I think, and they like, they have data on this, dude. Like they, like hospice nurses and stuff will do sometimes like surveys and interviews and things about like what people regret when they die. It's almost always, I didn't do this. I didn't say this. I didn't make this. I didn't put myself out there. I wish I had. I regret not. Like that is what haunts people. That is what lingers with them. And that's what honestly gives you miserable hag energy is when you are not putting yourself out there and doing the things that you believe in and having faith in your own quality. And don't get me wrong, like I used to write four articles a day every day for a publication where I was getting paid peanuts and I was putting myself out there. I wrote some horrendous I wrote some just cringeworthy writing. I wrote some articles that I do not stand by. I wrote some stuff that got me kind of canceled because it was really ignorant. Like I did it all, babe. And I was like 21 to 24. And I'm not going to say it like experience, I experienced ego death from it, but I definitely have seen like there's almost no criticism that could be levied that I haven't heard. And I can say one thing like criticism sucks. No one likes it. Even today, I don't enjoy it. But at the end of the day, like as you get better at what you do, like you yourself will start to refine yourself from that criticism. You'll start to learn. You'll start to discern between you know, random trolling and actual constructive feedback. You'll start to hone your craft, your various crafts, your process. You'll start to be more intentional and more conscientious with what you're creating. And you will also become better from that negative feedback that you will inevitably receive as part of putting yourself out there. Um, And without that, without that necessary feedback, you'll never improve. You'll just stay stuck in whatever it is that you're doing, you know, in your in the privacy of your room, never letting anyone see your experience. Um, So to me, the answer is that, of course I get nervous putting myself out there. Of course I feel anxious. Of course I have hopes and I don't know if I'll achieve them. Um, And of course I hear negative things, both from, you know, people who quote unquote matter, although that's ridiculous, and people I'll never know in my life. Um, And it never gets easy necessarily. You never get over the sting of it. But the alternative is so much worse and so much more dreary and dismal as a way to live that there just is no question. I would always rather put myself out there. I'd always rather do what I care about. So that's what I would say on that question. Like I said, I really appreciate the the emotion behind it. And I, I so understand that sentiment. And in some ways, it makes me grateful for the baptism by fire that I had at the beginning of my career because I it forced me into the deep end of having to put myself out there in a way that is vulnerable. But at the end of the day, you get one wild and precious life, babe. Like, do what it is that makes your heart sing, I say. And thanks to our friends at Saxoff Fifth for sponsoring this episode of The Financial Confessions. Saxoff Fifth's incredible value and shopping experience makes modern luxury accessible to everyone. From investment pieces to vacation essentials, Saxoff Fifth is where fashion takes off. Or go to a Saxoff Fifth store near you for up to 70% off spring styles. I personally have been a longtime shopper at Saxoff Fifth, and I really love that they have some of my all-time favorite brands that I'm honestly not about to be going and paying retail for in the actual boutiques, um, but I can still get all of those lovely clothes. I honestly, every time I go there, I find something that I wasn't even uh, necessarily looking for, but becomes kind of a staple of my wardrobe. Uh, I genuinely do love shopping there, so I highly recommend you check it out. And it's also really good for uh, buying investment pieces, which I know a lot of us are trying to do as we curate our like grown-up wardrobe uh, without having to pay full price, which 
you know I love. Whether you're looking for a fun spring floral dress, a staple blazer to rock at the office, or one of my personal favorites, white denim, Saks has you covered. Shop now at SaksOffFifth.com or go to a Saks Off Fifth store near you for up to 70% off spring styles. Okay, so probably the number one question that I've gotten in some form is how did you write it? How long did it take to write? Like what was the actual process of doing it? So um, each author is different. I've written several nonfiction books before and that process is rather different from just a purely sort of logistical perspective. So for those who don't know, the, the majority of nonfiction books are sold based on a proposal and several sample chapters, which is what I'd always done. Um, the proposals usually like essentially like a PowerPoint or like a, you know, a, a bunch of PDFs that have, you know, information about yourself, your platform, if you have one, the market, you know, comparable titles, it'll have like a lot of information about like why a publisher should invest in this book essentially and why it's going to be a success. And then you'll usually have uh, a few sample chapters for all the books that I've sold. It has been usually like the intro chapter and one or two samples from later in the book. So it's definitely a commitment, but it is not nearly the same as a fiction book. Um, the majority of fiction books, now if you're, I don't know, Stephen King and you're basically printing money and they know you're good for it, like you could probably, I imagine, sell a book on total spec. Um, and a lot of people who get book deals, they have multiple uh, books in that deal. So their future books are sort of bought alongside the first one. But for that initial book sale for a fiction book, most authors have to write the entire manuscript before they can sell it, which is a very massive undertaking. And the reason why a lot of people um, kind of get deterred from the process early on, which is totally understandable, um, because not only is it challenging in and of itself, Generally speaking, for most people, myself included, things that are challenging are all the more so when it's when no one is watching you, when no one is making sure that you do it, when you don't have a deadline, when you don't have external pressure or validation. So writing the manuscript in and of itself, now if you are working with an agent, um, you know, you've already queried, which is basically, you know, approaching an agent to see if they'll represent you. Um, generally the agent, you can send them, you know, partial, uh, parts of a manuscript and they will give you feedback. They'll talk to you about your idea. They might even, you know, redirect you in the very, very early stages. But before it can go to a publisher, you have to have a manuscript. So um, mine happens to be just under 100,000 words long. Um, but most novels that you'll see on a shelf are going to be somewhere between like 80,000 and 150,000, let's say. Um, and so for authors, that means that you have to put all of that work in and do all of that creative and just pure sort of brute force work, um, totally on spec, not knowing whether or not someone's going to buy it or validate it. And for me, I really found that, you know, forming a little group with other uh, writers that I have in my life, editors that I have in my life, um, obviously speaking with my agent, but just kind of forming a little, a little mini squad where we could encourage each other and give each other feedback. That was really helpful in providing exist, like um, external uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
external parameters to the work that I was doing so that I would stay on a decent-ish schedule. Um, I am going to be doing a video soon on my Tuesday show about kind of habits that I've put in place that really help me in all types of work um, to achieve things that I want. Um, and one of them is definitely creating little pods essentially for different things that you're looking to cultivate or focus on. Um, so once I had that little crew in place, uh, I wrote the book. And I do want to kind of defer to, I, I, I do want to sort of caveat my privilege here in the sense that I have been writing my whole career. I started off writing at another website where I was tasked with writing four articles a day, every single day, um, in perpetuity essentially. And, uh, so I just got really used to writing large quantities very quickly. Um, so I wrote about 5,000 words a day on average, not every day, but when I did, it was about 5,000 words. It took me 11 weeks in total to create the first manuscript, which is very fast. Some writers don't work that fast and that's totally understandable. It took me about twice as long to edit it. And I had both a structural edit, which is kind of like all the big moving parts and then a line edit, which is, you know, line by line, improving how things sound. So editing took twice as long as writing, which I've heard from other authors can be somewhat in line with their experience. Now, one of the few pieces of advice that I do feel really qualified to give for people who are interested in writing specifically, or really any creative endeavor, um, or really, I mean, honestly, this applies to a lot of endeavors outside of the purely creative or editorial, um, that I don't think at least for me, I don't think it's highlighted enough. Um, and whether you write quickly or not, I think it really applies. And that is to just get something down on paper and know that it's going to be and that you're going to revise it about five times at minimum before someone sees it who matters So or who's not working with you. Um, so it's okay that it's a lot of writers will get really hung up or a lot of creatives in general will get really hung up on everything being perfect as they go. Um, that is unrealistic. That is what will derail you from your process. That is what will um, put you in a spiral and take you out of the flow for weeks, years, possibly a lifetime. You may never get back to it. My personal method was I just wrote, uh, I write chronologically. So I just wrote from chapter one to chapter done. Um, but I wrote chronologically and anytime there was a passage of text that I either didn't have the materials to write, like maybe it had to be researched and I haven't researched yet or spoken to that subject matter expert yet, or maybe I just didn't know what I wanted to do there, or I couldn't think of something good. I would do just like a little TK, like come back here, write this, 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 and this, um, and then highlight it as a little reminder to myself. And then just keep on trucking, girl. And I did that by the time I had finished chronologically, I had probably about 50 spaces throughout the manuscript where I had to go back and fill things in. It was infinitely easier to do that once I was finished with the process and was just kind of plugging things in here and there. Um, the first draft of the manuscript, and I still have it, was terrible. Girl, it was bad. When I tell you, like, there were, first of all, I am addicted to repeating words. Um, it is my vice. <laughs> And my line editor was like, girl, not everything has to be blessedly like or, you know, unusually or I love an adverb like I've never met an adverb that I don't love. Like it's just like give me a word, stick an L-Y on it and I am happy. Um, and it was like that. It was like just like on a word to word level. It was really, you know, not optimal. A lot of the dialogue was like really stilted and like I was doing too much exposition in like not very organic ways. Some of the stories were kind of like clumsy. And that is totally normal. Like it is the the reason that I think a lot of writers and a lot of creatives generally think that their work is bad is because they're judging it off of their first iteration of whatever the thing is that they're creating. Um, and I 
could not advise against that more strongly because again, especially if it's something that you are going to take a while before you show to the public or present for sale or what have you, you should go into it knowing that the first version that you create is you're going to look back on and cringe to some extent. And that's totally healthy. But yeah, so like I said, I went through about all in all told about five iterations of the draft um, before I got to the final one that I'm extremely happy with. And I think that my process, while unique in some ways, definitely has a lot of insights to offer to other people who are looking to to do the same thing. Um, Another question that I get asked constantly is just about the um, the total cost that I'm investing. Now, I, like I said, will not be doing a full financial breakdown right now because I just don't have the data. And part of the reason for that is because, so without getting too into the weeds here, um, in pre-order, all of my print copies are going through one specific distributor that does pre-orders. Um, it's a it's the major distributor. It's called Ingram. Um, and they are the distributor that most non-Amazon, uh, retailers will buy from. Um, but even Amazon, so for Amazon specific orders, I'm using Amazon's own printing system called KDP because it's just a lot, you know, less expensive and more, um, seamless to print in-house with Amazon for copies that are bought on Amazon. But for all other copies, they are going forward going to be printed with Ingram. But during the pre-order phase, Amazon KDP actually doesn't do pre-orders. So you have to do it all through Ingram. These are the things that I literally never would have known and um, have not. Like I could talk about this for hours. And I, I so I've decided I'm going to do a, a workshop for those who want to attend. That's just like a really, really nuts and bolts breakdown of publishing yourself um, because it's grown by leaps and bounds in the past few years into a much more lucrative option. Um, And a lot more people have access to it than they think they do. And it's easier than a lot of people think. Um, But there's a lot to be known, um, to be figured out. And I want to kind of share that. I'll probably do a free workshop for, you know, anyone who buys a copy of the book. more to come on that. But so anyway, so all of that is to say all of my pre-orders are going through Ingram right now. And they do not have super to the minute data, unfortunately. Like I've been trying to get my pre-sale data. They're like, we can give you drips and drabs from different retailers, but we will not have a clearer number of pre-orders until closer to publication, which if I'm one thing in this life, I am a data-oriented girly. I am obsessed with data. I'm obsessed with metrics. I'm obsessed with quantifying things that are important to me. Um, And so this is my personal hell. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone. I think we can all agree. Um, But anyway, no, I say that to say that I don't have all the numbers that I want to present for the full financial breakdown, but that is coming. But just on a top line level, what I'm investing, and I wanna be clear that I'm doing this in a much more sort of in-depth way um, than a lot of people would or can. Um, But from my specific example, so all in, I'm going to be investing somewhere between 30 and $35,000, which is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I do not take that lightly. However, I do think that when you think about the money in the long game, it quickly starts to make a lot of sense. So for context, um, and I, I will break down in that video what I spent that money on, but I would say the vast majority of that money goes to um, editing, 
and marketing. Like there's really no surprising. I mean, there's no surprise there. Those are like two of the biggest um, aspects of publishing a book. Um, probably more of it in total will end up go to, going to marketing just because, you know, marketing is what makes or breaks a book. So, you know, that's where a lot of the resources have to go. But if you look at it from the long game, so if I were to have sold this to a traditional publisher, um, I was prepared for an advance of around $50,000, which is not nothing, right? Like it is definitely a nice chunk of change and something that, you know, writers could live on for a time. Um, but it is important to remember that your agent's fee comes out of that. It's about 15%. Um, it's broken out over usually four installments. So each installment is pretty small. Um, and they take a really long time. The last installment often comes a year after publication. And then once you earn out your advance, which most books do not, I should make that clear, most books do not, um, you are then, because my book almost certainly would have been a trade paperback, um, because as a debut fiction author, I just, I mean, maybe I could have been a hardcover, but I don't even know if I would have wanted to be a hardcover because those books are very expensive and I didn't want the pricing to be prohibitive. Um, and to put that much financial pressure on the book. Um, but suffice to say, if it was a trade paperback, as many, many romance novels are, um, once you earn out your advance, which is not a given, your royalties are about 7.5% of each copy sold, which is really low and something that a lot of authors are rightfully advocating to change because that is, quite frankly, a in my opinion, a, a rather unfair uh, royalty number for as essential as authors and their work are to what they're creating. Um, and for context, each copy that I sell of my book, depending on where it's sold, what kind of book it is, all of that stuff, um, my take, as opposed to the 7.5%, is anywhere between about 38% and 71%. It just varies depending on, again, where you're buying it and what kind of book you're buying, like, you know, print or ebook, et cetera. Um, so you can see here that once you hit a kind of critical mass, and I will need to sell around 6,500 copies to break even, I, I like feel like I gotta be pretty, we'll see. I don't know how close I am to doing that because I don't have my data. Sorry. <laughs> this is like, this is all I think about. I'm so annoyed with this. But suffice to say, once I crest that hurdle um, and recoup my investment, which I'm very confident that I will do um, based on, you know, sales numbers of my last book and, you know, my audience and all of that stuff and my marketing efforts. Once I crest that hill, it's all profit, baby. And it's a lot more money. So this is some real rough math happening here because um, that is, despite working in the personal finance sphere, not my strong suit. But again, we, as we discuss frequently on this channel, um, being good at math is not a prerequisite to being good with money. Let's get that clear. Um, but OK, so this number is really inflated for the traditional publishing because you would have to earn out your advance first. And I'm not sure how many copies that represents. Um, but even let's say it was like all profit, which it wouldn't be, that would be a lot less than this. At 7.5% of the uh, of each book sold in the trade paperback, if you were to sell 100,000 copies, is going to put you somewhere around $140,000. Now, again, these numbers are very rough. You have to think about the earning out, the advance, all that kind of stuff. 
in my projections, and this is doing a combination of paperback, Kindle, different platforms, like all that good stuff. Um, if I sell 100,000 copies before my profit sharing, because I am profit sharing with a group of women that I worked with before profit sharing, I'm looking at somewhere around $650,000 in my pocket. So that just gives you a point of reference as to how different the money is. And again, it becomes a lot more interesting as a, as a value proposition when you're dealing in scale, right? Because to get over the hurdle of that initial investment is the hardest part. The first thousand copies are the hardest to sell. The first thousand subscribers on YouTube are the hardest to get, like no question. But if you are able to get over that hurdle and if you do have a, the ability to scale somewhat, it's a whole different ball game once the numbers start start stacking. And I do think a lot more creatives than probably realize it would have access to this system. Um, and don't forget, I mean, that's not even counting the fact that you own 100% of the IP. And if there are adaptations, if there's licensing, if there are foreign rights sales, any of that, all of that is 100% you. None of it is shared with, the, with a publisher. So there is a lot of benefit to it. Um, but again, you do have to deal in scale. One thing I will say, is that I went a particularly expensive route because I wanted to do it up the way I wanted to do it. And I had the resources to invest and I've already built a seven figure company with my team. Obviously I didn't do it myself, but I know a bit about the ball game, let's say, and I wanted to really invest in it. So, you know, I commissioned an original oil painting. I got really high quality products. I got you know, even just like I'm sending out hundreds of physical arcs by myself, physical galleys, which are, you know, like depending on the type I'm sending, where I'm sending it to, whether or not it qualifies for media mail, which outside of the US it doesn't, like all of those details, it costs me anywhere between 12 and $20 for each one of those things that I'm sending out. Um, not to say it's not worth it, it's very much worth it, but not everyone can necessarily invest to that extent upfront. However, a lot of people could invest um, slightly less, uh, cutting corners here and there, which could totally be cut and I think still deliver a great product, um, have a lower upfront investment and therefore a lower bar to clear when it comes to earning money. Um, but it is something to think about and I'm not out here doing, I'm like, I'm, I'm not disrupting the publishing industry, but I do want to be really transparent with all of the numbers and the experience so that people start to get an understanding of what is, what's kind of going on behind the curtain and get a sense of where a publisher is useful versus not necessarily needed. Um, and one thing I do want to stress is I've traditionally published before. I will traditionally publish again. There's already something in the hopper and I plan to do other traditionally published books down the road. But we're, in general, I'm talking about books that are really high production. Like they have photography, they have illustration, they're full color. They're, you know, they're books that would be really, really difficult to high quality print if you're doing it by yourself because you're not dealing in scale. You don't have the warehousing, you don't have the distribution all of that stuff. Um, but for a book like this one, where you can easily do print on demand and the quality is good, you don't have to warehouse, there's not too much design involved, it's just black and white words on the inside. Um, there's a lot of options. And one thing I do wanna be clear to anyone who's considering publishing or is publishing, there is a gross misconception that if you're publishing with a traditional publisher, that they take care of the marketing. They'll do some, don't get me wrong, like they'll do some stuff. But if you want your book to be successful, unless it's just a runaway hit that, you know, in which case, hats off, they do happen. But for the vast majority of authors, you're gonna be beating that pavement too. You're gonna be making calls, you're gonna be packing mailers, you're gonna be sending thank you cards, you're gonna be reaching out to people on social media, you're gonna be creating your own assets. Like, 
you have to supplement it greatly and do a lot of work on your own. We did a lot of work on our own with the TFD book. For example, we found a client to finance an 11 city book tour and buy out the books and provide food and beverage and and travel and all that stuff. Publisher's not going to do that, girl. I mean, maybe they'll do it for like, I don't know, Elon Hildebrand, who's like a big best-selling author. Anyway, they'll maybe do it for those kind of authors, but not for not for Chelsea Fagan. I'll tell you that much. They're not rolling out the uh, the pink carpet. But all of that is to say, like, you're going to have to do a lot of this stuff yourself anyway, so you may as well kind of reap the benefits. So that's what I'm going to say about the money stuff for now. I know that was long. I'm sure many of you have dropped off like flies at this point, but hopefully for those who are interested and for whom this is relevant, Hopefully you're uh, taking some notes here and some of this is helpful. And again, I will be doing a very, very, very substantial breakdown of the finances for kind of 360 transparency uh, come uh, publishing date, which is June 6th. Anyway, guys, that's it. Uh, Like I said, I had such a freaking ball writing this. Um, I think it's amazing. I love it. It's the book of the summer. It's the book of my summer and that's what matters. That is truly the only thing that matters, honestly. So I hope you pick up a copy. It would make me infinitely uh, excited and grateful. But, you know, if you don't, that's okay. We don't have to vibe necessarily. Like I said, it's called A Perfect Vintage. Um, It slaps. It bangs. It is that girl. Go pre-order a copy at the link in my description. And I'll see you next Monday on an all-new episode of The Financial Confessions. Bye. (laughs) 